But as Carl mentioned, I'm going to ask that you lend me an ear for the next 50 or so minutes. Because like many of you, I was right where you were 30 years ago. But as I will share with you this morning, somebody loved me enough to one evening share what I'm going to share with you this morning. It so transformed my life that I left a very high position in my family's brewing business to travel throughout this country and other countries as well to share what I'm going to talk to you about this morning. That's how important what I'm going to talk about this morning is to me and to many people here this morning. So give me a, an ear for the next 50 minutes, an open heart, if you will, an open mind. Sit back, relax. We're not asking you to join any organization or to give money. We're asking you to take these words that I'm going to share with you, take them into your heart, leave this morning, think about them, ponder them, and then hopefully come to a conclusion that I came to many years ago. That's all we're asking. Thank you again for being with us this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, the Adolf Coors Company... Most of you are familiar with the name Adolph Coors. It's located in Golden, Colorado. It has now grown into one of the five largest breweries in this entire world. Let me take you to the year 1868 to Germany, where Adolf Hermann Joseph Coors, my great-grandfather, with just seven pennies to his name, without speaking one word of English, one day boarded a steamer headed for this great country of ours with a dream in his heart. And that dream was to start a brewery. He'd been trained as a brewer in his native Germany, lost both of his parents when he was 15. Came to this great country and in 1873, with a business partner, started a small little brewery in a mining town called Golden, 20 miles west of Denver. In 1873, he bought his business partner out shortly after starting his little business and started what is now known all over the world as the Coors Brewing Company. But something happened in 1915 that I want to share with you just briefly, and that's was Prohibition. Prohibition, as most of you know, was passed in 1919 as a national law, but in Colorado it hit our state in 1915. And from 1915 to 1933, this little brewery of ours could not make the product that my great-grandfather loved so dearly. And also in 1929, the Depression hit this great country of ours, and my great-grandfather, failing in health, was encouraged by his doctors to a, take a small vacation. And so he and his wife went to a, uh, a resort town, a small resort town then known as Virginia Beach, to hopefully uh, gain his health back. But while he was in Virginia Beach one Friday night with his health failing and seeing his brewery slipping through his fingers, a brewery that he'd started and put all of his life into, stepped out on the sixth-story ledge of his hotel room and jumped to his death. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I hate to share that. It's painful for me to share that, but I do that for one reason. What my wonderful great-grandfather didn't realize was that the purpose of our life is far greater than our own personal fulfillment, our peace of mind, and even our happiness. It's far greater than our families. It's far greater than our careers and even success in our ambitions. There's more to life than just that. My grandfather took over the business after my great-grandfather's death, and upon his death in 1970, turned it over to my two uncles. My father was involved in the brewing business. My dad, Adolf Coors III, was a remarkable man. He was chairman of the board for many years of our brewing company. And 60 years ago, I was born into this incredibly successful, world-known family. A family driven by success. A family very, very good at what they did. But let me share a poem with you right now, and I hope that it will speak to some of you sitting here this morning. And the poem goes like this. It says, the, this is the age of the half-read page, the quick hash and the mad dash, the bright night with the nerves tight, the plane hop with a brief stop, and the lamp tan in a brief span. The big shot in a good spot, the brain strain and the heart pain and the cat naps until the spring snaps and the fun's done. So many people all over this world, I suggest to you this morning, are leading lives just like that. You're looking at a man right here that led a life like that for almost 31 years. Driven by success. Searching for something that would fill a void in my heart. But can I suggest to all of us sitting here this morning that he who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but a complete fool forever. C.S. Lewis, one of the 20th century's most gifted writers, tells you and I the following. He says, if you live for the next world, men and women, if you live for the next world, you'll get this one in a deal. But if you only live for this world, you'll end up losing them both. I want to share with you a few words that were spoken by probably one of the most successful businessmen who has ever lived in this entire world, who has ever, ever lived. He happens to be the psalmist David. Now listen to what David said thousands of years ago. It pertains to us right here. He says, ladies and gentlemen, our days are very few and our days are very brief. He says, like the flowers, like the grass, they're blown by the wind and they're gone forever. Now what David was saying thousands of years ago to you and me sitting here this morning is he is saying this. He's saying this life, these few short years that we're living on this earth, these few short years are nothing more than a training ground for where we're going to spend eternity. That's all this life really is. It's a training ground for where we're going to spend eternity. I want to take you this morning to a cemetery outside of the town of London, England. And as we walk through this cemetery, you're going to notice a grave marker with this inscription. True story. This grave marker says, She died for want of things. And right next to that grave marker is another grave marker with this inscription. And this grave marker says he died trying to give them to her. (laughs) 
You know, to, to so many of us, life consists of an endless string of materialistic if only. If only I could get that raise, my life would be happy. If only I could get that better paying job, that would do it for me. If only I could buy that new Lexus or that new Lotus or that new Mercedes, that would do it for me. If, if I could buy that bigger home down the street, bigger than my neighbors, then that would do it for me. You know, if I could marry that gorgeous gal, she would make me happy. If I could marry that handsome man, he most certainly would make me happy. Let me read to you now the words of three individuals I know you will recognize. These were words that were spoken just before they passed from this life. The first one I want to quote this morning is John D. Rockefeller Sr. Just before he died, listen to what Mr. Rockefeller said. He said, I have made billions, billions. He said, but not one of these dollars has brought me any happiness. Interesting. Henry Ford Sr., chairman of the board of the largest automobile company in the world, just before he died, listen to what he said. I was happier when I was a mechanic. <laughs> wow. Now let me quote Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the richest families in all of Europe, just before he passed on. Listen to these words. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There's no joy in it. Now I ask you, why could these people say these words? Now let me give you a very good hint why they could say that. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when we're born into this world, David, we're born batteries not included. God creates you and me, body, soul, and spirit. But when we're born into this world, there is something missing. There's an emptiness in our hearts. We are born spiritually dead. I want you to remember that because I'm going to bring that in in a few more minutes. We're born, we're actually walking around only two-thirds of a human being with body and soul, but we're born spiritually dead. It causes a vacuum, it causes an emptiness in our hearts that I'm going to talk to you about this morning, and there's only one way that emptiness can be filled. The comedian Milton Berle once said, a family is a lot like a bath. At first it's okay, but then it's not so hot. <laughs> And 60 years ago, I grew up in a, I was born into a wonderfully, fantastically successful family, a family recognized all over this world, surrounded by two older sisters and a younger brother, and men and women, I had two wonderful parents. I was blessed with a dad, Adolf Coors III, one of the most remarkable men I will ever meet in my entire life. He ran our brewing empire successful businessman, semi-pro baseball player, flew his own airplane, an architect, an engineer, cattle rancher. As remarkable a man as he was, as successful as he was, though, however, men and women, I want to share something with you about this man. As busy as he was, he always had quality time for us, his family. And I know who I'm addressing this morning. I know I'm addressing very successful individuals, and I respect you. But men and women, can I suggest something that as busy as you are, 
And I ask that you spend, and I hope you do, spend quality time every day with your families, every single day. That's what my dad did. He always had quality time for us. I want to take you to the year 1958. My father grew tired of living in Denver, and he moved our family out onto a ranch that he owned 20 miles west of Denver into a home that he built almost single-handedly. And just two years later, as my father was driving to work one cold February morning in 1960, down a dirt road that he had traveled hundreds of times to the brewery just 12 miles away. On that February, cold February morning in 1960, for some unknown reason, my father stopped his automobile just three miles from our home to help Mike, what he, th Mick, what, what he thought was a stranded motorist, just a few yards away. With the motor still running and the radio still playing, my father walked out of his automobile and walked over to this man's car to lend what he thought was going to be a helping hand to a stranded motorist. But Dave, on that February morning in that automobile just 50 yards away, was a man whose name was Joseph Corbett. A man who in 1955 was sentenced to a life in a penitentiary in California for murder. And in 1958, escaped from that prison and came to Colorado. And in 1960, on that tiny bridge three miles from our home, he met my father face to face. There was a violent struggle on that bridge that morning. And my father, as much as we can determine, apparently was able to free himself from that struggle. And ladies and gentlemen, as he was running back to his automobile, his body was riddled with bullets. Forty-four years of age, his life ahead of him, a loving family at home. And for the next seven months, my mom, my two older sisters, and my younger brother, and I didn't know whether my father was alive or dead. The FBI was immediately called in to begin searching for the person or persons who was involved in this horrible crime. My father was recognized all over this world. My friends, can I suggest to you this morning that anger is one letter short of danger? Anger is an acid that can do far more harm to the heart that holds it than any heart on which it is poured. Seven months after my father disappeared on that cold February morning, his body was found about 40 miles south of our home. And my wonderful family began to disintegrate before my very eyes. Not only was I blessed with a wonderful dad, Jeff, I was blessed with a wonderful mom. Just 43 years of age, I watched that gorgeous, six-foot-tall, radiantly beautiful mom change before my very eyes as hate and anger began to consume her. And hate will kill us, my friends. Hate will kill us. And I'm going to deal with that hatred in just a few minutes. And my family began to disintegrate before my very eyes. Not long after my father's murder, I was accepted into one of the largest, uh, one of the best law schools in the state of Georgia. At the age of 17, I walked onto this campus, Mercer University. Some of you may have heard of Mercer. As I walked onto this campus at the age of 17, I noticed one thing. There are gorgeous girls in the South. Beautiful women. <laughs> Stunning women. And I have to say, instead of majoring in pre-law my freshman year at Mercer University, I majored in the Greek system. <laughs> Fraternity was my major. Sorority was my minor. 
At the end of my at the end of my freshman year, I was called into the dean of men's office, and he said, "Adolph, we've got a an academic standard here at Mercer University." And he said, "I have to tell you that you have not met our standards." And he said, "You're not going to be invited to attend your sophomore year at Mercer." And I left to return home to my family. Oh, I need to tell you something else. My family prides themselves on education, and I returned home that summer a failure in my family's eyes. It was not long after I returned home that summer that I was called into our living room one afternoon, and I walked into our living room where my mother and this absolutely huge man, most. I can't describe my feelings when I walked into this room. This man looked like he was a Marine Corps poster boy, and it turns out that he was. <laughs> Had a butch haircut. He stood up to introduce himself to me. He's my mother's cousin. He was a colonel in the United States Marine Corps. He shook my hand, and my arm almost came off. He looked like he'd eaten nails for breakfast. This guy was unbelievable. And he said,、uh, "Boy," he said, "I want to tell you that your mom and I have been talking this afternoon. And do you know where you're going?" <laughs> and I thought he meant maybe to the movies that night or、uh, something like that, you know. And I said, "No, I really don't." He said, "I do." <laughs> And the next thing I knew, I was on an airplane one Friday night, headed to San Diego, California. And that Friday night, as I walked off the airplane, Mary, I wasn't greeted by friends or relatives. I was greeted by three of the ugliest men I'd ever seen in my entire life. And these men didn't like Adolf Coors the Fourth very much, and they literally dragged me from the back of my neck. They grabbed one of them, grabbed me by the back of my shirt collar, and dragged me out of the San Diego airport, and literally picked me up and threw me in the back of a pickup truck. That was my introduction to the United States Marine Corps, where I spent the next six years hiding behind a tough macho Marine image. My body weight went from 195 pounds to 272 pounds. 20-inch arms, a 54-inch chest, a 21-inch neck. Karate became my god. Determined to be the best Marine the Marine Corps had ever seen. Made rank very quickly. But the void was getting deeper in my heart. Just before I was discharged, before coming out of the Marine Corps, just before I left the Marines to return home. I got a call one day from my mother. She was crying uncontrollably on the other end of the line. I said, "Mom, what's the matter?" And that morning, men and women, my mom informed me that my oldest sister, just 27 years of age, the proud mother of a brand new baby son, had gone in for a routine physical and had been diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. Twenty-seven years of age, but as a tree falls, men and women, so must it lie. As a man lives, so must he die. As a man dies, so must he be all through the days of eternity. A year later, my sister 
pass from this life into the next. A training ground, that's all this is, a training ground. It's been said that a man is incomplete until he's married and then he's finished. I read a recent survey that said that single people die earlier and marriage is healthier. And from that survey, I concluded that as if you were looking for a long life and a slow death, get married. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Upon being discharged from the United States Marine Corps in 1967, I returned home to marry my high school sweetheart. I wish you could meet my bride this morning. We've been married now 38 years. Prettiest gal in the entire world. Her name is BJ. In 1967, we began our lives together. And walking out of that church that August afternoon in 1967, in my dress, marine dress blues, and the gal of my dreams on my right arm, we walked out into the Colorado, beautiful Colorado afternoon. I looked at my wife, and I said to myself, can this gal make me happy? I knew she was looking at me as well, Mary, and I knew she was probably saying the same thing, can this guy make me happy? And ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you that our mates were not created to make you and I totally happy. Don't put that responsibility on your husband or your wife to make you totally happy. That's reserved for one relationship. You know, we're funny as human beings. We spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need in order to try to impress people we don't even like. And that was the first seven years of my marriage. While BJ was busily trying to change me, I began to bury myself in materialism, and I had a lot of money to bury myself with. I graduated from the University of Denver School of Business, one of the best business schools in this country, four years after I became married. 1973, I went to work for the largest single brewery in the entire world the Adolph Coors Company, located in Golden, Colorado. I was put into an extensive management training program. I had to learn the entire business. This is the largest brewery in the world, 2,000 acres. While in that management training program, there were many nights I wouldn't return home to my wife and my son. There are many days I went without sleep as I began to climb the corporate ladder of success, whatever that nebulous term means. I was determined that if I just could become president, the youngest president of that company, that I would be happy. One morning I got into my automobile, it was in October of 1976. I hadn't slept in three days. I began to return home to my wife and son 25 miles away. I was 275 pounds, earning a big six-figure income. Had a home in the mountains, boats, airplanes, all the toys, all the things we think are going to make us happy. 
I made it almost home that morning, but fell asleep just about a mile from my home. Fell asleep at the wheel of my automobile. Hit another car head on. I was in recovery from that accident for the next two years. My body went through the windshield. My knees were shattered. My brain a mass of scrambled eggs. While in recovery from that accident, men and women literally on my back with a marriage headed for divorce, no friends, I began to ask myself some questions that I want to ask all of you sitting here this morning. I said, Adolf, who are you really? And Adolf Coors, why are you here, really? And Adolf Coors, where are you going with your life, really? You see, without a purpose, life is motion without meaning, ladies and gentlemen, activity without direction, events without reason. Without a purpose, life is trivial, petty, and pointless. Oh, I had all the things that I thought we were going to make me happy. I had them in spades. But that void was getting bigger by the second. It was during that recovery time, Dave, that one evening I invited one of our senior vice presidents home to meet my wife and my son. This man had been hired by my dad 20 years earlier. He was one of our strongest up-and-coming, vibrant vice presidents, and I went to work for him. And I invited him to meet my wife and my son, and so he and his beautiful bride came to our home for dinner one night. And it was over dinner that we were discussing our families, and they began to share with us about how their marriage had failed and how their careers, she was an internationally known singer, and he was an up-and-coming vice president of our company, and their lives were growing apart. And they began to share what brought their family back together again. And that evening, they happened to mention the name Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, that's interesting. This man was very successful, and this woman was internationally known, a beautiful gal. And, and they began to share how Jesus Christ had healed their family and their marriage and their relationship with their kids. And then they asked my wife and I an interesting question, and I want to ask you the the same this morning. They said, Adolf and B.J. Coors, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? And I looked at this man, his name was Lowell, and I said, Lowell, I'm an American. Um, I think I'm going to heaven because I think I'm a pretty good guy. I do more right things than wrong things. I, I think I'm going to heaven. And he said, uh, what guarantee do you have of your going to heaven, Adolf? And I said, well, I really don't know, Lowell. And then this couple, for the next three hours, began to open up some incredible truths with us. And I want to share with those with you briefly this morning. That evening in our dining room, this couple began to explain this. They said, Adolf and B.J. Coors, 2,000 years ago... God literally stepped out of eternity and into time in the very person of Jesus Christ. And he came to live with us for a purpose. 
And Jesus Christ, being God, is the only eligible candidate to deal with the issue of sin in our lives, Adolf and B.J. Coors. Do you know all of us are born rebellious against our Creator? Every one of us in this room. And this man we know as Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless life as you and I are not capable of living. And then a fact of history 2,000 years ago, this man we know him as Jesus Christ went to a cross for you and I to die the most hideous form of execution ever devised by man. How many of you saw The Passion of Christ? How many of you saw the movie? Ladies and gentlemen, can I suggest to you to, to this morning that that movie was probably not even close to being reality? 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ went to a cross to die for you and I, a most hideous form of execution called crucifixion. When they removed his body from that cross, he didn't even resemble a human being. And he literally, 2,000 years ago, paid for every sin you and I will ever do as long as we live. And as a result, he paid our price for our pride and rebellion against him. You see, we owed a debt we couldn't pay, and Jesus Christ paid a debt he didn't owe. And Jesus Christ gave his life for us so that he could give his life to us in order that he could live his life through us. And Lowell and Vera went on to explain that our basic sin problem is not one of behavior, but of condition. Every human being by nature is born prideful and sinful and separated from God. And as a result, when you and I take our last breath on this earth, Mary, we cannot have eternity with our Creator. But then Lowell and Vera began to explain that thankfully God made provision for you and I, Bill, by sending Jesus Christ to die, bearing full penalty for our sin and rebellion against him. And since the problem is a matter of our condition, no amount of good behavior will ever save you and me. And what I'm sharing with you this morning, my friends, is not a religion. I wouldn't bore you with a religion. We're not talking about a religion here. We're talking about a relationship. Don't misunderstand me. See, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for your pride and your rebellion and mine against him. And he died the most excruciating death called crucifixion to deal once and for all the issue of our sin against him. And as this couple left our dining room table several hours later, they turned to my wife and I and they said, B.J. and Adolf Coors, you have a decision to make. Jesus Christ paid your full price. He has given you a pardon. But Adolf Coors, that pardon is not good if you don't reach out and take it. And you have a decision to make, Adolf and B.J. Coors. And men and women, I suggest that every one of us here this morning have a decision to make. The pardon has been granted, but we need to reach out and take it. And my wife made that decision just a few nights later. I saw my wife dramatically change before my very eyes. I couldn't handle the change. I asked my wife for a divorce. I walked out on my then four-year-old son. 
my wife and I moved into a hotel in downtown Denver, hoping that maybe another woman would make me happy. While I was separated from my wife and my son, a very good friend of mine gave me a book that I recommend to every dad sitting in this room this morning. It's a book called Do Yourself a Favor and Love Your Wife. Ladies and gentlemen, I cried my way through that book over the ensuing months I was away from my family. Marines don't cry. Coors men were never allowed to cry, but as I read the pages of this incredible book, I could not stop crying. You see, that book explained what a real man is, Jeff. A real man is not one who can fight his way out of a bar. A real man is not a one who can buy any toy he wants to buy in this world. A real man is not one who can play par golf in any golf course in this world. A real man is one who has his priorities in line with the God who made him. The most important priority men and women you and I will have as human beings is a loving relationship with the God who made us, made possible through Jesus Christ. The second most important priority is to love your mate. But that love can't come from us. That love has to come from him. It's a very special love. The third most important priority is to love those precious kids God has blessed us with. To spend quality time with those wonderful, wonderful gifts. And the fourth most important gift is to have true friends. You want to know what a true friend is? A true friend is one who will attend your funeral someday and not continually be looking at this. I had none of the above. None. But it was not long after reading this book that one Saturday afternoon I went to hear a man speak. The largest auditorium in downtown Denver. Hundreds of people. This man spoke for about an hour, and at the conclusion of his message, he said this. He said, there is salvation in none other. There's no other name under heaven given whereby you and I as human beings can be saved. God has given us eternal life, he concluded. He said this life is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He who has Christ has life. He who doesn't have Jesus Christ has no life. Oh, I was living, my heart was beating, but I had absolutely no life. I was a shell of a man. My body weighed from 275 pounds to 168 pounds. No friends. Consumed with this world's gifts, but no life. That afternoon, this man invited the audience to say a very simple prayer, a prayer we're going to pray in about five minutes together. A prayer to accept God's pardon. A prayer to invite the God of His universe into our hearts, to make us a complete human being, body, soul, and spirit. And that afternoon, this man began to pray, and I prayed silently with him. Tears began to come out of my eyes. And as I said this very simple prayer, the void that had been my heart in my heart for almost 31 years 
instantly, instantly filled as I said yes to God's provision for me. Instantly filled. Suddenly my life was complete. I was now a full human being, body, soul, and spirit. And if I were to die that afternoon, I would have eternity with my God in heaven. And I walked out of that auditorium a complete human being. Not long after that, I returned home to my wife and a son, now capable of loving my wife with a love I didn't have before, his love. A love for my son I didn't have before, his love. Determined now to make my family what God wanted it to be. And he began to knit our family back together again. Not long after I returned home, Dave, I got a call from my mother one afternoon. She said, I'm going to be leaving town uh, to spend a weekend with friends in Aspen. Would you come over and uh, say goodbye? And I said, sure, Mom. So we got into our automobile to, re to go over to my mom's house. And that afternoon, we were able to share with my mom for the few minutes we had with her before she left the incredible love of Jesus Christ. Tears began to well up in my mom's eyes. She said, how can I have what you have? Hate had consumed my mother for 15 years. She was a shell of a woman. I said, Mom, all you have to do is reach out and take the pardon he has given you. Just ask him into your heart. And I said goodbye to my mom that afternoon. Three days later, my mother had a massive stroke, fell down a flight of stairs, and never regained consciousness. But men and women, death is not the end of the road. Death is a bend in the road. And that bend leads to one of two places. And where we spend eternity is determined upon a decision you and I are going to make in just a few short minutes. I trust most of you have already made that decision. And again, I want to emphasize that we're not talking this morning about a religion. I wouldn't bore you or insult you with a religion. This is a relationship. You and me, incredibly sinful, prideful human beings with a God who loved us so much that 2,000 years ago he made a decision to reach down and take us to be his own. It's not about going to church. I went to church every Sunday. It's not about being a good person. It's not about doing right things and wrong things. It's about a relationship. It's so simple. Don't miss it. Please don't miss it. It's all about do versus done. God doesn't love us because of who we are or what we can do. That's religion. Rather, God loves us because of who he is and what he has already done for you and I. It's done. It's settled. Now reach out and take his gift. It was Jesus Christ in my heart in 1977 that enabled me to go into the prison where Joseph Corbett was serving a life sentence for the murder of my dad. In 1961, he was caught in Canada and brought back to Colorado to stand trial for the murder of my dad. And in 1961, Joseph Corbett was sentenced to life in the Colorado State Penitentiary. And in 1975, men and women, into my heart came the God of this universe. 
And in this heart, he found a hate that I cannot describe to you this morning. But over the next two years, my God took me on a training course called Forgiveness. And as I began to pour myself into his word, his love letter for us, I began to discover that God detests hatred. But I also knew that if I was going to forgive Joseph Corbett, I knew that it wasn't going to come from me. I knew it was going to have to come from a higher source. And to make a long story short, in 1977, the very gates of the Calder State Penitentiary were open for me. And I went into that penitentiary in the power of Jesus Christ to sit down face to face with a man who murdered my dad, Joseph Corbett. To do one thing and one thing alone, and that was to forgive him for the hate I held in my heart for him for 17 years. My mother died of hate. Not a stroke. It was, a, it was hate that killed my mom. And hate was killing me. But in 1977, in the power of Jesus Christ, I was able to sit down and able to address this man. And I was able to say, I forgive you, Joseph Corbett, for what you have done to me and my family. Not in my power, men and women, but in his. And I said, I forgive you for what you have done to me. And I ask for your forgiveness of the hate I've held in my heart for you for 17 long years. And that was the beginning of a long process called forgiveness. And can I suggest to all of us sitting here this morning that true and complete forgiveness can only begin when we have a relationship with the God who made us, not before. For God so loved the world, men and women, that 2,000 years ago He gave His one and only Son. And whoever believes in Him shall never perish but have everlasting life. What does that really mean? It's very simple. Really, summing everything up that I've said this morning, I'm going to sum it up this way. The picture of the condition of man and the solution is very simply this. Each one of us is born spiritually dead. We're two-thirds of a human being. And the wages of our sin and rebellion against our God is an eternity in torment apart from Christ. You don't want that. I don't want that. So 2,000 years ago, God sent His one and only Son to bridge the gap between spiritual death and spiritual life. Jesus Christ, a fact of history, came to this world 2,000 years ago to identify with us in our death so we might identify with him in his resurrected life. And Jesus Christ says to each one of us this morning, come to me for life, not to your career, not to your bank account, not to your toys, not to your mates, not to your friends. It says, come to me for life. Jesus Christ is our only hope of glory. It's that simple. Our only hope of glory. The evidence for Jesus Christ is overwhelming. This is not a fairy tale that I'm sharing with you this morning. There is more confirming evidence for Christ's life, 
his death and his resurrection from the dead than any event in ancient history. This is not about a fairy tale. This is about a fact of history. I could bury you with evidence that would keep you reading for the rest of your life. It's not because of a lack of evidence. It's because of pride in our life that keeps us from coming to him. I'm not going to promise you this morning that if you come to him, your life is going to be trouble-free because the Christian life is not a life free of troubles. But I do suggest that he is the perfect security in all storms of life. He offers us peace. He offers us complete fulfillment. He offers to make us into the human beings he created us to be from eternity past. He's done that for me. He's done that for countless in this room this morning. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened down with life. I want to give you rest, real rest. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And ladies and gentlemen, for all of us, there will be a final judge. And that judge won't be our fellow man. That judge will be none other than Jesus Christ as we stand before him someday to give an account for what and how we lived our life on this earth. And he's going to ask each and every one of us, what did you do with me while you were here on this earth? What did you do with me? And that's the question I want you to come to grips with right now. It's who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? It's the most important question I could ask you. Who is he? Well, he's the God of this universe who created every one of us, who wants to have a relationship with us to make us complete. And he's given us a pardon. He says, now reach out and take that pardon. I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Would you bow with me in prayer? I'm going to pray just a very short prayer, and I'm going to ask you to pray right along with me, silently as I pray out loud. And I'm going to ask you to mean it with all your heart, because I want you to walk away from this prayer breakfast in the next ten minutes without a doubt in your mind that you have eternity with Christ, and your eternal destiny is secure. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I need you. And by an act of my will right here, I open the door of my heart and my life. And I receive you as my Savior and as my Lord. And I thank you for dying for the forgiveness of all of my sin against you and for coming into my heart and life. From this moment on, living your life through me. I now accept by faith your gift of salvation. Take control of my life this morning, right now, right here. And make me into the kind of person you created me to be from eternity past. And thank you for coming into my heart and life right now, right here. And granting me eternity with you. As you have promised me in Jesus Christ's name, I do pray this. Amen. Thank you all very much.
Thank you for listening to this edition of Faith at Work. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm Carl Grant. Please follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Faith at Work Radio. And for more information on the High Tech Prayer Breakfast, please visit www.hightechprayerbreakfast.org. You have been listening to Faith at Work with Carl Grant. 